Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. Yes, hello, podcast listeners. Unless there's been an apocalypse since the time we recorded this. <laughs> it actually is 2023. 2023. Although we recorded this in 2022. Not that you need to know that, but we just let you into that little secret. So assuming the world has continued to go on, <laughs> it is 2023 as you are listening to this. Very good. And yesterday was January 1st. If you are listening to this when we post it and the older listeners will remember when that January 1st used to be the memorial of the circumcision of the Lord because it's eight days after his birth. It is now known as the, uh, the what solemnity, the, the of, solemnity, Mary, yes, solemnity of, of Mary, mother of God, uh, which is a beautiful feast and celebration in its own right. But I want to say a word about the more traditional celebration of the new year as the circumcision of the Lord. Hebrews says there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Where mm. did Christ first shed his blood for us? Saint after saint, mystic after mystic, uh, the church fathers, throughout the centuries, uh, you know, church fathers in the beginning centuries of the church, and then the same idea was carried throughout the centuries, that the redemption that does not happen without the shedding of blood, the reflection is he first shed his blood. We, we are trained to shrink from this thinking. We don't want to go there, but it is Christian thinking. The first time Christ shed his blood was the blood of his loins, the blood of his most intimate male member. Mm. This is our faith. Talk about theology of the body. I, I'm reminded also of Catherine of Siena, who had this mystical vision in her betrothal to Jesus. I, this, this, When we're so uncomfortable with our own bodies, when we're so uncomfortable with our genitals, when we're so uncomfortable in our own skin, this can really wig us out. But I, I'm sharing this not to shock anybody or scandalize anybody, but to invite everybody to ponder the incarnational mystery. If there's something that makes us feel weird or ill or that's just gross, the problem is not with Catherine of Siena and the incarnational mystery of our faith. There's a problem somewhere in our hearts that we need some oil on that wound. We need some oil on the wound. Here's the mystery that Catherine of Siena uh, experienced in her betrothal. Christ gave her a wedding ring, and the wedding ring that she saw in this mystical vision was the foreskin of Christ. That is astounding. Hmm. What is this whole reality of circumcision? What, what, and, and why? Why? What is going on? Sacrifice of flesh, shedding of blood for the sake of the most fruitful nuptial union. This was the promise to Abraham, offspring, 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 and that was the sign. And the sign is fulfilled in the new covenant, the sign of the old covenant fulfilled in the new covenant, which is the circumcision of the heart, which is the piercing of the open side of Christ, which is the consummate moment of his giving up of flesh and shedding blood for his bride, 
the church for the sake of fruitful nuptial union. This is our faith. And so I always like to say theology of the body is not some add-on to the Catholic faith. Theology of the body is the very logic of the Catholic faith. The mystery of God, study of God, theology is revealed through the human body. This is the mystery of Christmas that we continue to celebrate. This is the mystery we're bringing into the new year. And we are here to talk about that mystery and whatever questions people have Absolutely. submitted to us. This is what we do. That's right. So we're starting off a new year and wondering if just what you want to update people about with this uh, year. Yes. For the, we have uh, a lot Institute. going on in 2023 in the Institute. I can't get into all the details. Uh, some things that are right on the horizon at the end of January into the first week of February, we have our Sexual Redemption and Integration course offered by the Desert Stream Ministry Team, headed by Andrew Kamiski. Uh, check that out. This is a different kind of offering. This is um, more of a inner healing kind of workshop. There's a lot of small group work that we do on this kind of a course. It's a, I would call it a, a real practical application into the nooks and crannies of our lives of the theology that we teach here at the Institute. So practical application of theology of the body. You can check that out. We have a whole uh, roster of online and in-person courses coming up in 2023, and you can check out the whole schedule of those by clicking the link in the show notes as well. I'll just leave it at that for now. Yeah. We'll, we'll unfold these exciting things that are going to happen in 2023 as the year goes on. That's right. You ready for a question from I a patron? Am. Okay. Well, this is from a patron named Joseph. Hello, Joseph. Hello, Dr. West. You often talk about opening up the desires or temptations we feel as we feel them to the Lord. There are even a few example prayers on your YouTube channel where you describe the way to live without repressing or indulging. But I feel like I'm always oscillating between repression and indulgence. I never have the presence of mind to take your advice in the moment of temptation. Mm. Or if the thought does come up, I'm too ashamed of myself to even consider praying. It becomes impossible to turn back. How do I remember how to escape when my mind becomes so focused on, focused on the temptation itself and then choose to do it in spite of the shame I feel when I know I'm in the middle of doing something that keeps me far from God. I've gotten fairly good at going back and praying, both through the desires and the questions, and also for forgiveness and help in the future, but I feel as if I'm completely helpless at the time. Joseph, I, I can relate to that sense of hopelessness. I, some of the issues I struggle with in my life, there's certain times where I get so frustrated with something or so angry with something, and I, I in the moment, I know there's a, a feeling of powerlessness when you're being swamped by a temptation, whether it's a temptation to lust or a temptation to anger. Uh, we can feel the sense of utter powerlessness. And in that place of powerlessness, the temptation, the voice of the enemy, and this is, this is where the discernment of spirits comes in. We offer an entire course here at the Institute called Theology of the Body 
and the interior life, where we look at the Ignatian principles, St. Ignatius's principles of discerning spirits. What voice is talking to me? Mm. Um, in that feeling of powerlessness, there's often a voice of discouragement. Look at you. You are so weak. You are so stuck in your crap. There's no way out of this. Look how powerless you are. And then the shame comes in, and now we're just sinking further and further into the quicksand of whatever funk has descended upon us. That, that voice that is accusing us, that voice that is scolding us, that voice that is shaming us, that voice that is taking our powerlessness and rubbing it in our faces, when we apply those principles of discernment of spirits, we just say, okay, whose voice is that? Is that the way the Heavenly Father talks to me? Is that the voice of my Father? And the answer is a resounding no. Our powerlessness should not be a source of shame and self-condemnation and just giving up, be, well, I'm powerless, there's nothing I can do, I'm swamped by this temptation, I've already stepped into the quicksand, it's just going to suck me in and there's nothing I can do about it. That powerlessness can be opened up as it is, as a prayer. It, from the place of powerlessness, we can cry out from that powerlessness and say, Lord, let your strength, let your power reach me in my powerlessness. Uh, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of compassion on you here, Joseph, because I was just saying to you, Wendy, the other day, we were talking through some of my struggles with when I get swamped by frustrations or certain angers, and I feel that powerlessness, and I need, I, just, I often need time, like I need space between when I feel that being swamped, and then later I'm, I'm able more to pray about it or open it up. So, Joseph, believe me, I know that in the moment struggle and difficulty, uh, but there, in that powerlessness, I, you, your specific question is, how do you remember in the moment? How do you have the—how did he say it? How do I have the, the, um, the mental space or the presence of mind yeah, or something? Yeah, I think it was presence of mind, yeah. How do I have the presence of mind in that moment? I, I will speak to the, the issue of lust from my, my own experience, and it would be utter foolishness for any man to claim he's conquered all of his lusts. I, I don't want to claim that at all. I know I have ways to go and still more purifications needed at many levels of my being. But I can look back at the journey I have been on. I'm a 53-year-old man, and I started taking this journey very seriously 33 years ago, and I have seen great victories. I have, by God's grace, I've made great progress. And I think I got to the point in my struggles with lust where the cross was more attractive. The way out, which I knew involved the cross, became more attractive to me than the temptation itself. And this is critical. The only way we can really overcome temptations is through a desire for a for a for a reality that is more attractive mm. than the false attraction that is luring us towards the lust and the path out of that involves a real death but the sweetness 
of the joy that we come to experience by suffering and dying with Jesus, just as it says in Scripture, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That joy, the more we taste it, the more we're ready and willing to say, I prefer the cross. I prefer the death that I must die for a deeper joy, a more lasting joy, a more real joy, a more genuine joy. I prefer that genuine joy and the path that I have to go on to get it, which is the cross, over the momentary pleasure that this lustful temptation is holding out. Mm-hmm. And coming to a certain presence of mind that this temptation right now that's luring me in is a lie. It yeah. is not going, it's, it's putting out to me a false promise. Mm-hmm. And the false promise because it's a false promise, is never going to pan out. Yeah, you'll get a momentary uh, gratification, momentary satisfaction, but then you fall into the shame. Then you fall into the self-loathing. Then you fall into the desire that comes back with even more power and more strength, and you're sinking deeper and deeper into that quicksand. I, I, I can almost recall, I can almost taste it in my mouth, getting to a point in my early 20s when I was really, really wrestling with some some violent lusts, where I came to savor the death. It was almost like, oh, good, here's another opportunity to mm. die with Jesus. Oh, good, here's another opportunity to do what I came to call a spiritual jiu-jitsu, where you take the force of the temptation, and, and with what the enemy's throwing at you, with what your own disordered passions are enticing you to, you you do the spiritual jiu-jitsu, which is to take the force of the enemy and use it against him, throw it back, so that it becomes an opportunity of grace. Every temptation can become an opportunity of grace. And I'll, I'll share with you a scripture verse I've been clinging to for years, whenever temptations come. I treasure your promise in my heart, O Lord, lest I sin against you. What's the promise I treasure? That my deepest erotic longing, eros, that cry of the heart for infinite love, for infinite joy, for infinite happiness, for infinite delight, for ecstasy, to put it in a word, that's God's promise. I treasure your promise in my heart, because if I don't believe you want to grant the deepest desire of my heart, I'm going to take my satisfaction into my own hands. And that, that's the lest I sin against you part of that verse. And I forget what psalm it is, but it's one of the psalms. I treasure your promise in my heart, lest I sin against you. Another scripture that comes to mind, open wide your mouth and I will fill it, says the Lord. Brother, that Mm -hmm. hunger you feel, that the lustful temptation is saying, come over here, you'll get a little satisfaction over here, come come over here. Open wide your mouth, open that hunger to the Lord, and He will fill it. That's His promise. I treasure your promise in my heart, O Lord. What's the promise? You will fill the hunger. I treasure that promise, lest I sin against you. The presence of mine, I know this is your specific question, how can I have the presence of mind? I would pray for it in advance, because there is something in your question that's leading me to conclude that by the time you cry out or feel powerless to do so, 
there's already been several steps into the quicksand. So when you are not in the quicksand, when you are in a place of, of consolation, when you are in a place of not feeling that temptation, that is the time to pray in advance for the grace in the moment of temptation not to fall into it and to have the presence of mind to cry out to the Lord so that you can see the temptation coming even from a mile away and and thus avoid it. And I I think here of the Our Father, which the final petition, deliver us, or no, not the final, but the one before that, deliver us from evil. The one before it is lead us not into temptation, right? But deliver us from the evil one is what one of the Gospels says. Deliver us from the evil one, lead us not into this temptation. I would invite you when you are in a place of relative peace and relative free, relatively free from those temptations, to pray earnestly those petitions of the Our Father so that you would have the presence of mind when the temptations come. That's the best advice I think I can give. I love that. All that you said, I, I know that you are drawing from your own experience, and that's so powerful. And I, I just want to affirm and just restate something you were saying, and just from this perspective that Joseph was talking about, um, when he does remember, he's too ashamed. Mm-hmm. And what you shared about experiencing really a grace in that moment of temptation, of of knowing you prefer truth over the lie or the grace of kind of even the grace of a dying and being closer to the Lord. When you experience that, then that brought about that became a connection for you with the experience of temptation was the promise of following that path of, you know, really genuinely opening this up to the Lord. What I'm trying to just point out is that you may not, if you do not remember something, you do not remember it. You can't remember to remember what you haven't remembered. Right. <laughs> but when you do, and then it's shame that's keeping you away, that's where you have to be willing to press in and not let the evil one keep lying to you in that moment because you have remembered. And so he he's not a, he's not able to have power over you with that message of shame if you really know the Lord has truth and freedom for you and you really want it. So I think it's that in those times when you do remember and then the shame is like the second attack that the evil one is right. um you know launching at you. That's where when you begin to have victories there you allow him just to speak to you, even though you're ashamed, and give you the grace in that situation, the next time the temptation comes, your mind will remember that grace, Mm, mm. that goodness of being close to the Lord, and that will become the presence of mind, or the desire will be being redirected in your heart just through those very experiences. And I think that's what you were sharing, and I just wanted yes. to repeat it. So. Yes, the, the shame is... Ne- that shaming voice is never the voice of the Father. It is never the voice of the Lord. There is a certain healthy shame we can feel about our, our sin, but the Lord never shames us when He reveals our sin. He always reveals our sin with eyes of mercy mm-hmm. and compassion. So you have the authority 
through your baptism to pray the prayer of deliverance. The Our Father is a prayer of deliverance. Deliver us from the evil one. You can pray that prayer when you're feeling that shame. Deliver me from this, from the evil one who's trying to shame me uh, into sinking even deeper into this quicksand. Joseph, I also want to recommend to you, you are a patron. I want to recommend, you already have available to you as a patron, a series on your membership page, a series called God, Sex, and the Meaning of Life. And if you haven't already watched that, I really encourage you, invite you, spend some time with that. Make that your your daily bread for, I think there are 10 or 12 short sessions in that God, Sex, and the Meaning of Life series. Make that your daily bread for maybe a month, and and whatever sessions of that series speak to you in a particular way, revisit those. Revisit those regularly so that you are training yourself in the true, the good, and the beautiful. The true, the good, and the beautiful is far more attractive than the false, the bad, and the ugly, right? All of those lustful temptations are counterfeits to the true, the good, and the beautiful. As a patron, brother, you have that resource already available to you, so please, please do take advantage of that. Mm. Our next question is from a woman from France. Um, She didn't give her name. She said, I read your book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, and I understood that when a married couple gives themselves to each other, it is the yes of their wedding about fidelity, fertility, and until death. I'm really struggling to understand why contraception is prohibited. It seems like couples who use NFP and only unite when they're not fertile aren't really saying yes to fertility in that act. And on the other hand, there are couples who experience infertility, and we believe that there's still a spiritual fertility to their sacrament. So I understand that fertility is very important, but as you can tell, I'm not convinced that contraception is necessarily wrong. I really do want to understand. Bless you, bless you, bless you, dear listener, and I I invite you to spend more time. You said you've already read good news about sex and marriage. Please spend more time with chapter 6. I I give my most extensive explanations of the Church's teaching on contraception and the difference between contraception and natural family planning in chapter 6 of good news about sex and marriage. So I just want to point you back in that direction. What the couples are called to embrace in every marital act is the way God made them. Mm. That's what they're called to embrace. And when we render ourselves, when we ourselves render the sexual act sterile, it is a direct attack against the way God made us. God made us such that a woman is not always capable of conceiving a new life. Uh, if, if that were the case, if God wanted every marital act to lead to a child, then couples who were faithful to the Lord would have hundreds of children. This is clearly not God's plan, thanks be to God. God has written into the way He made a man and a woman's body times of fertility and times of infertility. Every time a husband and a wife come together, 
It, they are not required to say, I hope that this results in a child. All they're called to is, I rejoice in the way God made us. And if it happens to be during the time of natural infertility, well, guess what? That's what they're called to rejoice in. I rejoice in the fact that our marital embrace is naturally infertile. Or if they choose to come together when they're naturally fertile, I rejoice in the fact that we are naturally fertile. Thanks be to God. Praise God for the way he made us. We may never directly attack the way God made us. Here's another way to put it. Every time a husband and a wife engage in the marital act, they are enacting, at least potentially, the powers to generate new life. The power to generate new life is activated, right? When the husband gives his seed, he is activating the potential of a new life, right? And the woman receives his seed, she is activating the potential of a new life. It must remain entirely in God's hands. If you choose to activate those forces of life, you may not at the same time choose to thwart them, right? Because that is an anti-life behavior. That is acting against the way God made us, right? You're not always obligated to activate those forces of life. But if you choose to activate them, you may not thwart them. It becomes, in, in theological terms, it becomes an anti-epiclesis. What does that mean? Well, the <laughs> epiclesis of any sacrament is when the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, is called upon the physical reality to make it especially holy to communicate the divine and spiritual reality. So when the priest in the Eucharist, in the Eucharistic prayer says, let the Holy Spirit come upon these gifts like the dewfall, that is the epiclesis, right? And I'm sure I've shared this story on other episodes of this podcast, but it, it really opened my eyes. This was 26 years ago. You and I, Wendy, were giving a talk at our parish, and a woman raised her hand. She was seeing how the marital act is meant to be an enactment of the very life-giving love of the Trinity. She was seeing how the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, and she raised her hand and she said, well, what if I want to have sex with my husband and we don't want the Holy Spirit there? And it struck me so profoundly because that's exactly what you're saying when you render the sexual act sterile. You are performing an anti-epiclesis. It's like a priest going through the motions of the Mass and saying, let the Holy Spirit not come upon these gifts because I don't want them to be made holy. That's called blasphemy. That's called a black mass, right? The priest may have a good reason not to say the mass, but don't say the prayers of the mass and then contradict the epiclesis with an anti-epiclesis, right? That's, that's, a, that's what a couple is doing when they render their sexual ex sterile. When they are engaging in what God has made naturally infertile, they can still pray and should pray. Holy Spirit, Lord and giver of life, we want you to be part of this act however you choose. If a husband and wife can pray that prayer every time they engage in their union, Lord and giver of life, we want you to be part of this act however you choose, they are right where they're meant to be, including, and we can flip it around here, including a couple who longs to have a child, 
and is unable, right? That's, that too must be left in the hands of the Lord and giver of life. We can do everything within our power to make the circumstances of the marital act as potentially fruitful as possible, and learning natural family planning can help with that. Certain surgeries can help with that. If a woman is not ovulating and she can take a pill that can help her to ovulate, that can help with that. But we may not take over, we may not of our own hands either render the act sterile or force the conception, for example, in a Petri dish, right? We can make circumstances optimal for conception, but the Lord and the Lord alone is the Lord and giver of life. We cannot cross that line. Uh, to, to cross that line by rendering the act sterile, it's basically saying, I want the sex, but I don't want the babies. Uh, we're taking the powers of life into our own hands there. With artificial reproductive technologies, we're saying, I want the babies, but without the sex. And we're taking the powers of life into our hands there. The church's teaching is remarkably consistent on all of these fronts. And I invite all of the listeners, this woman from France and everyone, if you haven't really taken a deep dive into good news about sex and marriage, my Q&A book, I have a whole chapter on the contraception question, and I have a whole chapter on the reproductive technologies question, and there are very compelling answers to these mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like adding to this listener that um, I think that we have a hard time when we're recognizing or being forced to realize that our minds and our attitudes have been formed by something other than by our Lord. And I think yes. the mindset of contraception uh, being kind of a norm or acceptable or even recommended or responsible is one of those words that gets thrown around. Um, it isn't from the Lord, and yet we can kind of not want to look at that. You know, that can be painful to us. Wait, there's something I've thought was, I've maybe even called it good. And, and now when I look at it through the Lord's eyes, I have to admit he doesn't call this good. What he's called good is the, the giving of ourselves to one another in marriage and the fruitfulness that he's blessed it with. That's what he's called good. And, and there's a, a point in our struggle and in our looking at these things with new eyes where it's like the aha, mm -hmm. I see it. I see that this really is good and that in all my trying to justify or make excuses for what I've thought or believed or wanting to, you know, not be kind of challenged in the end, like I see it, you see the beauty of it. And, and I want the beauty. And, and I, that's my prayer for you as you're in this struggle that the desire to see what has the Lord called good and how can I desire what he desires for me and for the world. And that, you know, it shouldn't surprise us in the end that like, whoa, this is countercultural. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why would it even be, why would we bother with the gospel and with the Lord if it were just what everybody's doing? We, right. We're called to this 
transformation to conversion, all of that. And that's what we can encounter when we encounter a teaching like this is like, Lord, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the steps that this is going to require of me. And he, he wants to be there and show us the goodness. I just want to share one other thing because you were talking about a class. I remember, on the other hand, I remember a couple learning NFP with us and a wife sharing how powerful it was for her that as she and her husband learned about her body and the signs of fertility and how he agreed with her to honor what they were learning about her body, just a byproduct that she experienced in her own heart was a new appreciation for him Mm. that she was totally unexpected. She couldn't have thought, oh, now I'm going to feel this way. It just was a gift that she received in response to the the loving honoring of the way God made her cycles of fertility that caused this new reverence for her husband. That's just an example of like graces are waiting for us on the other side of these struggles. And if we're looking for the goodness that the Lord has for us, what peace that will bring in our marriage. I think you're right, Wendy, and, and wise to just be honest about the challenge that it is. Mm-hmm. It is a challenge. And I, I remember Janet Smith saying years ago, well, if contraception and natural family planning are just the same thing, well, okay, then just use natural family planning. But right away we're like, Whoa, but, 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 but that's going to be challenging. Exactly. And, and therein lies a profound difference. Not that because it's challenging means it's the right path. That's not necessarily a, uh, what I'm trying to point out here. But what is the challenge of practicing natural family planning? The challenge is gaining self-mastery. The challenge is gaining a, a sacrificial attitude. The challenge is learning how to communicate more deeply with your spouse and learning how to honor the way God made our bodies. And the real challenge, to put it in a word, is to grow in virtue. And that that is not... Uh, something foreign to love. Uh, What we're really challenged here by is the demands of love. The demands of love are challenging. And my challenge to our listeners and my challenge to myself is to let the demands of love challenge us. Mm. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Our next question is from Carlotta. Hello, Christopher and Wendy. My name is Carlotta. I'm 27 and a mother of three under three. I write to you from Spain. I hope I can ask this question properly since I don't speak usually in English. I was listening to an episode in which you talk about abstaining on the wedding night. I always believed that the consummation of the marriage is when you have sexual intercourse on the wedding night. Wouldn't it be preferable if you wait to get married until you could make love with no obstacles and be fully open to life, I always understood that's the way it should be. It seems weird that you have to postpone your honeymoon or the wedding night because why do you even get married then? For me, it makes sense that you do so when all the steps of the marriage could be done together. Carlotta, I I certainly understand your logic and I don't even necessarily disagree with it fundamentally. I mean, I think every couple would desire to be able to enact bodily the marital commitment they made at the altar. And this was one of the things that came out in the previous question, that 
the sexual act, the marital embrace, we call it the marital embrace because it is an expression bodily of the very vows you took, the commitments you made at the altar to love one another freely, totally, faithfully, and open to life. So ideally, yes, uh, a couple would want to be able to exchange those vows at the altar with their words, and then exchange those vows and renew those vows with what John Paul II calls the language of the body. Ideally, they'd want to do that as soon as possible. But there are circumstances, and I, I don't remember the exact episode it was, but I know we maybe we were talking about some friends we have that uh, we know of who, because uh, their circumstances when they got married were such that it would not have been wise to bring a child into the world right away, and because with all the planning and the date that was available for the wedding, and they, it's not that they necessarily knew this six or eight months in advance when they set the date, but sure enough, as her cycle was unfolding month to month, and as the wedding date got closer, they're like, uh, looks like it's going to be peak fertile time on our wedding day, and we have a good reason not to be bringing a new life into the world right at the start of our marriage. Do we change our wedding date, um, or do we just get married on that day and we abstain for a week until we're naturally infertile. And that's what they did. They they got married on that day knowing they were peak fertile time, and they chose to abstain for whatever it was, eight or nine, maybe even ten days, until they were able to come together. And I remember when they told us that story, I thought, what an amazing expression, a beautiful expression of freedom. Right? There is no obligation to consummate your vows on the wedding night. Right? There is a call uh, to consummate those vows. That's the normal course of married life. Uh, there are some exceptions right, with the Josephite marriage. But the normal call in married life is that you consummate your vows through marital intercourse. But there's no demand as to when that happens. Right? It could be that wedding night, the wedding night, and it most often is, but it doesn't have to be. Mm. Um, and yeah, that couple we know who had to abstain for the first week or so of their married life, they shared stories about the delightful ways they expressed freedom. I think we have this idea that, oh my gosh, we've been waiting so long, we've been waiting so long, we're chomping right. at the bit, we're chomping at the bit, <laughs> can't I just, ah, can't we cut the chains loose and just go for it? Nope, we gotta wait another week, ah! Yeah. Well, that whole mentality, although you know, maybe understandable at some level. Uh, obviously, yes, there's a wait, and you want the wait to be over, but we are called to freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And here's something I will ask my audiences, and I've, I've asked over 25 plus years of doing this work, I have probably asked hundreds of thousands of women this question, and I want all the female listeners to perk up. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a question right now. Ladies, how many of you want to be married to a man who cannot say no to his sexual desires? I was about to say, please raise your hand, but I won't see it. But that's what I do. <laughs> that's what I do with my audiences. Please raise your hand. Right? Never in, in 25 plus years of doing this work, never has a hand gone up. Never has a woman said, oh, yeah, I want to be married to a man who can't say no to his sexual desires. 
women intuit this immediately. Even if they can't quite express why, they just know because they know. And here's what I think they know. I'll try to put words to it. Women intuit right away that if a man cannot say no to his sexual desires, he's not free. His yes means nothing. If he can't say no, his yes means nothing. And the woman there in that relationship is an object, a kind of sexual outlet for an uncontrollable urge. The call to love is a call to freedom. Only those who are in possession of themselves can be a true gift of self, can make a true gift of themselves. Uh, put it this way, if you are so chomping at the bit for sexual relations before you get married that you can't be alone together or you can't, you know, have intimate expressions of tenderness and embracing one another that doesn't cause you to get overwrought and fall into sexual sin, or let me put it this way, if the only thing that kept you from having sexual relations before you got married was the fact that you didn't have the opportunity to do so, what does that say about your level of freedom and self-mastery? And, and I'm not saying this to scold anybody or shame anybody, and, and the, the journey of self-mastery is lifelong. Nobody can ever claim, I've arrived and I am complete master of myself. There's always deeper levels of freedom. But marriage is a call to, to, to really live that freedom. And that couple who abstained for the first eight or nine days or whatever it was of their married life, they were expressing their true freedom. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Mm. Yeah, I love what you're holding out to Carlotta is just a, a new um, just sense of the, the goodness and beauty of that time of abstinence even at the start of marriage, and also just a, an understanding that although it may have seemed in her mind that consummation is is the union on the wedding night, yeah, okay, that may be frequently when it happens, but it's not necessary. So I think those were two really good clarifications and things to hold out. And I also just want to add this, there was a part um, of her question where she was saying, why do you even get married then? And I don't think, I think her point is, why get married when you still have reason to avoid a pregnancy? So I just, you know, I don't know what your situation has been, Carlotta, that, you know, in your life, you were able to get married at a time when you had no need to avoid a pregnancy. But I, I do think that, well, on the one hand, the desire for children is very strong in a, often in a newlywed couple, and there could be a prudence to waiting to be married until you are in a situation that you can welcome children quickly. There are so many different circumstances in people's lives, and just to have an openness of our hearts to to allow for all of that, that the Lord could very well be calling people to marriage at a specific time and also calling them to that phase of responsibility where they avoid pregnancy for a while, just to, to have that openness of heart to see that 
that's not outside of the scope at all. And there's no need to be judgmental of that, but just to realize that so many, there are so many different circumstances in which we find ourselves in our lives and to, to trust that God is blessing us. And just as, you know, it's a blessing to come together on our wedding night and rejoice in the gift of self enacted that way. It was also a blessing for this couple and many other couples to delay that for a little time. We are called to freedom, brethren, as St. Paul says. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your sinful inclinations, but use your freedom to become a gift to one another, as St. Paul says. Mm. How are we called to live out that gift? And there are all kinds of different circumstances that call for different expressions of that gift. I think that's the point. Yeah. We hope this episode has been a gift to you and we hope you will make it a gift to others if you know anybody you think will be blessed please hit that share button and until we meet again through this podcast may you know it that you are a gift and you are called to become that gift and i just messed it up but when do you know the next line become what you are <laughs> is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.